Hey everybody, welcome to episode 196 of the Running Rogue Podcast. This is Chris coming to you from Austin, Texas. I'm excited about today's episode as I share with you the audio from my conversation last Thursday with Frank Shorter and Ben Rosario, a conversation that Hoka One One and Jack Rabbit brought to us. And so we did that via live Zoom on Thursday, talking mostly about training during these COVID times, but we also dug into a lot of other fun stuff, including some great insight into Frank's relationship with Steve Prefontaine before Steve died. I think you'll love this conversation. We've got insights, really good insights from Frank in his wisdom. And then, of course, great stuff from Ben Rosario. You both, you should know both of those names, but in case you don't, Frank Shorter is a legend in distance running in the United States as the gold medalist in the marathon in Munich in 1972, came back to win a silver in 76 in Montreal, was beaten by an athlete that was later uncovered to be a part of a state-sponsored doping program in East Germany. So Frank should have, have had two Olympic gold medals. And then, of course, Ben is the head coach of the Northern Arizona elite team sponsored by Hoka. He coached Alphine Toliamuk to the Olympic trials marathon title back on February 29th. And again, you're going to love this conversation. We'll get to that in a second. A couple things before we start. First of all, just a reminder that I really want to highlight the fans voice, your voices, the listeners voice in my episode 200. So you've got a little bit of time, but Feel free to please send me an email, chris at roguerunning.com on impressions and perhaps impact this podcast has had on you. Would love to tell some of your stories as a part of that 200th episode. Also, we've got some tracks, some real track and field to talk about. The, the Monaco Diamond League meet went, went off this past Friday and the action was absolutely fire. This one is kind of cool for me because I was able to go to the Diamond League last July in person in Monaco. And so this uh, this seeing this one go off in a mostly empty stadium was interesting, but also brought back those memories from last year. And the results were absolute fire with world records going down, world record attempts going down. We had a lot of area records and personal best as athletes proved that they've been using their quarantine time wisely. So wanted to cover off on a couple of things and then of course talk about Josh Cheptegai's world record and then we'll jump into my conversation with Frank and Ben. But first of all, a few highlights. One, it was disappointing to see that Sam Kendricks and Mondo Duplantis didn't get a head-to-head battle as we had expected based on the start list. But apparently Sam Kendricks made it to Monaco, but his polls his pole vaulting poles did not make it. So he was a did not start in the pole vault, which meant Mondo was able to easily win that by almost a foot, a full foot over the next competitor. He also set a meet record jumping six meters and five centimeters in what seemed like a pretty entertaining one man show in that event. And then you had a lot of other good races Again, super fast races, a lot of aggressive racing, 
I think one of the more fascinating ones for Americans, at least, was watching Donovan Brazier win the 800, which you would expect, but you would not have expected him to be challenged in the way he was by the young Bryce Hopple, University of Kansas graduate who has now turned pro for Adidas. He gave Donovan an absolute run for his money and just narrowly finished second. If you can go back and watch that race, I would highly recommend it. I think it was perhaps the most exciting race of the meet. Then you had crazy stacked women's 5K, Helen O'Beary, Let's send it back Gide, Sifan Hassan, Beatrice Shepkoic, the world record holder in the steeple, all in that race. And interestingly, Sifan Hassan ended up DNFing in the race, but Helen O'Beary ran a world lead to get the win just over Let's Send a Bet Gide in a pretty exciting race as well, and certainly a fast race. And then, of course, you had the big world record, 5K world record from Joshua Cheptegei from Uganda. He beat Bekele's world record that was set back 16 years ago in 2004 beat it in in a time of 235 so taking two seconds off the 5k world record and he did it in just really really consistent 61 60 splits pretty much the whole time averaging about 403 per mile for the race and did it in what looked like a fairly comfortable fashion he didn't seem to be really on edge till maybe the final strides and he was able to run his last lap of the race was his fastest running in just under 60 flat for the world record this is a big one it's got a lot of people talking because many thought that Bekele was this this record of the distance records on on the books for the men that this record was going to be a tough one to take down because Bekele did it in the prime of his career on the track. And so it has a lot of people asking questions about, you know, does this mean that Chip Tagai is doping? Does this mean, you know, what shoes is he wearing? All these things are coming up. And by the way, I don't want to put a damper on it, but I but I but but to me and there are people that tell me sometimes I'm too negative on this stuff. And I will say this. It's an amazing result. Cheptegei is not an athlete that I've, that I have, or that I know enough about to sort of make a judgment about whether I believe this to be a clean record or not. So I'm going to withhold judgment there. And, you know, there probably is a shoe impact, but we don't know exactly what that is. He was wearing a new Nike spike called the Zoom X Dragonfly, which does not have a carbon fiber plate, but it does have the Zoom X foam, which is which is famously used in the Alpha Fly and the Vaporfly marathon shoes. Nike has another shoe called the Air Zoom Victory, which is which more tries to fully replicate on the track what the Alpha Fly or the Vaporfly might do on the roads. And so he was not wearing that shoe, but he was wearing a new shoe that has the new foam. And so naturally, there's a lot of people asking the question, you know, should we believe? Is this a legitimate record? And 
while for now I'm going to say jury's out, who knows, I'm going to believe it until I have a reason not to believe it. But I will say that for those that attack those who might raise the questions, I don't think that's quite fair because really the ones you should be mad at, if you're mad at people raising questions about results these days, the ones you should be mad at are the heads of the sport. Those in the the very top of the top for world athletics who could do more to ensure that we know exactly what we're getting from footwear, who could do more to ensure that we have clean sport and that the clean sport principles and testing protocols are applied and followed uniformly as much as possible. That frankly isn't happening. And so therefore we get these questions because the keepers of the sport aren't doing their job of trying to do their best to eliminate those questions. And I get it. There's always going to be people who cheat and that's, That would be difficult to weed out, but it's even more difficult when you don't have leaders that are really willing to dig in and do it. And so if anybody's going to be mad about people asking questions about a world record, then I would encourage you to be mad at SEBCO, World Athletics, the World Anti-Doping Agency, the IOC, all of the big players in international sport that could change the culture if they truly wanted to but that oftentimes prefer to choose politics or power over the integrity of sport, and that's frustrating. But you should be equally frustrated, or you should be primarily frustrated with them and not those who would be asking these questions, because I think we would have fewer questions to ask if our leaders in the sport did a better job of getting answers for us. So that's my take there for now. It's an amazing run, and I'm just going to say hats off to Chepta Guy. It's good to have a new name to root for. I've rooted for him against Mo Farah. I've rooted for him in other races, and so I've got no reason to not root for him now. But, yeah, jury's still out on whether this is a legit result or not because he did take down a world record that many thought wouldn't be broken anytime soon, and some people ask questions about whether or not Bekele was doing things fully clean at that time as well. So that is, again, jury's still out. But an amazing result, an amazing meet. Good to see real live track action happening happening again. And it was also happening here stateside as the Music City Distance Festival went down in the Nashville area this past week in the U.S. as well where Emma Coburn, Corey McGee, the boss team, team boss came and represented, but you also had some of the first results from the very new on athletic club that is based in Boulder and now coached by Dathan Ritzenhein, who has Joe Klecker from the University of Colorado as a key player, and they just announced their full team last week. So, That's a new player in town. They were all there at the Music City Distance Festival. And so, again, it's good to see Meets getting creative about making this happen. And by all accounts, they're able to do it in a safe way by ensuring that these athletes are tested before they go and compete. So kudos to all of those involved in making this happen. It is fun to see real live track action again. All right. So that's a quick intro. 
Now I'm going to throw you right into my conversation with Frank and Ben again. I think you'll enjoy this one. Here we go. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Adapting Your Training During COVID with Frank Shorter and Ben Rosario. My name is Chris McClung. For those that don't know me, I am co-owner of a business in Austin, Texas called Rogue Running. We coach athletes of all levels for all distances here in Austin and also have locations in Dallas and New York, and we train athletes virtually as well. I also happen to be the co-host of a couple of podcasts, the Running Rogue podcast, as well as the Clean Sport Collective podcast. For those that like podcasts, I would encourage you to check those out. I've actually had both of these athletes on those podcasts. Frank and Ben have been guests on uh, Ben's been on both. Frank, we've had you twice on the Clean Sport Collective podcast. So excited to be talking with you both today. Before we introduce our very special guests, I wanted to quickly thank Jack Rabbit and Hoka for bringing this together and getting Ben and Frank ready for this conversation. They are partnering in this month of August to really push some new things going on in the Hoka world, including a beautiful new update to the Clifton 7, which I've got right here in front of me. We'll talk about that a little bit later. And then also we've got some new Hoka apparel that's been out recently. I'm wearing uh, one of these shirts now, Ben and Frank and Brent all have one on as well. So they're partnering together for this month to push everything that Hoka is doing. And so I wanted to thank them for bringing us this conversation. And then of course, wanted to quickly introduce our guests. We've got the legend living legend in the sport, Frank Shorter, known probably best for his gold medal in Munich in 1972, should have also won a gold medal in 76, but got the silver and was robbed of that in Montreal in 76. But his contributions in the sport on the track were amazing, but we think, I think off the track he's done perhaps more to elevate the sport than, than many know, and that includes helping to professionalize the sport, working on the transition from amateurism to professionalism in track and field, as well as bringing clean sport to a more organized fashion in our sport, helping form USADA, the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, and then bringing us cool things like the Boulder Boulder, an iconic race there in Boulder that happens typically Memorial Day weekend at the 10K distance. And then we've got Ben Rosario, who will be a living legend someday, on his way to being a living legend, currently coach of Hoka NAZ Elite, Northern Arizona Elite Team, and he coached Alephine Tuliamuk, who won the Olympic Trials Marathon on February 29th in what seems like a lifetime ago, but has also done a lot in the sport outside of that, including founding a running store in St. Louis at Big River, and then doing amazing things as an athlete himself, competing in the Olympic trials back in 2004, as well as being on a podium at the U.S. Marathon Championships, where I think he finished second back in the day. So welcome, Frank and Ben. Good to have you guys on. Thank you. Great Thanks, Chris. I wanted to start just with a question, Frank. We'll start with you about how things have been. Obviously, crazy times. I would assume you're there at home in Boulder, but how has it been for you during the last five months? Well, it hasn't been that hard for me because I historically did most of my training uh, alone. We would have group runs on our easy runs during uh, you know, the week, but very often, particularly in my hard training, I would do my very hard training uh, all by myself. The other advantage I think I had and why I hope to impart some information here to people is 
from about my coach uh, at Yale actually admitted after the Olympics, um, well, to me, because I got on the bus after the Olympic marathon to ride back to the athlete's village because it was raining. Last person on the bus, door closes behind me. I look right in front of me is my coach. His name is Robert Giegengack and his wife, he was right there. And I started to talk to him about the race, the, the marathon, you know, in the Olympics, I just won. I talked, I said, well, you know, the training I would do when I was in college. And then I just kind of added to what you taught me. And he said, and you have to allow a little humor here. He was the Olympic track coach, track and field coach in 1964. He was from Flatbush, Brooklyn, and he talked like Elmer Fudd with a Brooklyn accent. So he said to me, Fwanky, he always called me Fwanky. And he said, Fwanky, you've been twining yourself since the middle of your junior year. And so I had actually uh, kind of learned to train myself. So that's what I did after. So um, I was lucky uh, when I turned 40 to realize injuries were really gonna start to be a problem when I began to bike. And so I biked a lot and uh, it was my favorite. But over the years since then, I found there are other, uh, what I call next bests to running that you can do when you feel it's important to do that. And so in a way I've been doing that during the pandemic. Um, and so I'm at the point, I'm 72, where uh, I don't run every day. I run about four days a week, varying, varying speeds. I swim three days a week. Uh, I ride the spin bike inside because I'm tired of uh, reconstructive orthopedic surgery. And, uh, and, and, and so I have a myriad of things I do and I do upper body strength training. I do core training. So I do kind of all of the above having adapted it, it to me. But I think a beginner can do the same thing. In other words, work on the endurance aspect of it after you've given yourself two months uh, to really get in shape. You need two months to decide whether or not you wanna work out and exercise in running. And then after that, try every now and then something else. I call them, again, next best, your favorites. Um, and so I've been doing that. And so I've, I've developed a routine for myself during the pandemic that at first was inside and I have my spin bike here and I have my um, weight machines downstairs. I actually have a circuit training machine downstairs. And then as, as things opened up more and more, I began to go more and more outside. And now I go to a place called Rally in Boulder here every day. And as things opened up and got a little safer and a little safer, I expanded out what I was doing. Um, and so that's how I cope, but I'm doing the same thing that I always did. And another thing that I always did, which I would advise people who are just starting out or trying to work out during the pandemic, I always had this feeling, even when I was running in college for stress relief, I would go out on an easy run and I would just run until I felt, okay, that's enough. I, I think we all have an instinct, I call it an exercise quotient. We all have an instinct in us for when on a particular, particularly easy day, you've done enough. Got to listen to that. I do. <laughs> I love it. How have you been, Ben? Well, at, on the team here, you know, our approach was to 
try to analyze everything that was going on and make the de best decisions possible. So when our state had the stay-at-home order uh, put into place, we abided by that and we, we trained on our own for, I guess it was about six weeks. Of course, I was giving them their, their training uh, and then checking in with them with you know how it was going. We have about a dozen athletes. And once that stay-at-home order was lifted, we kind of took that as our guide to then, uh, or our green light, if you will, to then um, begin training together again, which we did at first in small groups, men and women separate. And then once we kind of, again, gathered all the information we could, we realized, okay, we can meet as a group uh, of 12 as long as we keep this circle very small and very tight. And, and that's what we've done. And we've been able to have a few you know, fun type of races as well, which I think, again, to Frank's point about taking what we're saying and applying it to you, um, I think that's a fun thing to do with, with your little circle or, or even just on your own. Um, I think we've done, let's see, we did a two-mile time trial around Buffalo Park, which is kind of a famous place to train here in Flagstaff. Uh, we were able to do a 5K on the track with a very limited field in, in Utah where every, all the athletes were from very close by. Um, and even then this week on Tuesday night, we did a mild time trial on the track, which is a little, little out of our comfort zone, but we did that um, at a track nearby here that was open. And then we added on a relay at the end and we split the teams into men and women. So we did a two by 400 meter relay and we showed that on Instagram. And so we've just been trying to keep it fun, but we're training hard. I mean, we're training hard. There's no reason not to, in, in our opinion, and that's only going to make us better in the future. I want to talk about training, but I want to ask you something first. One of, to me, one of the only positives to come out of the pandemic was the documentary, The Last Dance. I know you're a basketball fan, a Jordan fan, grew up in that era, sort of watching him. I assume you watched all 10 episodes. I just want a few takeaways, a few nuggets that you pulled away, either as an individual or, or as a coach. My favorite takeaway was when he said leadership has a price that was my favorite quote of the entire 10 episode series i thought it applied very much to coaching uh but but i think it can be applied to all sorts of um all sorts of things but for me personally it was just a reminder that look i've got to make tough decisions uh, and it came at an interesting time right when i did have to make tough decisions about how to train during during covid and the sorts of uh things that i needed to be thinking about in terms of how we were presenting ourselves on social media uh, how we were interacting with each other the responsible decisions we needed to be making outside of running um and some of those things aren't always going to be taken well but that's the price you pay you have to do what you believe is right for for your organization um and you have to deal with what comes. And, and I, I thought that was a very powerful statement. I love it. I want to switch gears to something I think both of you have in common at some level, which is and going to you, Ben. I've, I've read you talk about Steve Prefontaine as somebody you look to as a younger athlete, somebody that you idolize. Obviously, he, the late great Steve Prefontaine, is a legend in a sport. What did you take away as a young athlete? from looking back on his career. And then I want to talk to Frank in a second about knowing him because I haven't had a chance to ask him that yet. Well, I'm honored to be talking about this subject with Frank right here. Uh, I mean, Frank and, and everybody, you, you, you can't imagine how many times I watched Fire on the Track. Um, and I didn't watch the, the, the documentary that came out on the back end. I, I had the VHS tape 
that I taped off of CBS the first time it was shown. Um, and I used to watch that before every single race I ran in high school. Um, you know, of course, I read the book by Tom Jordan multiple times. Uh, he had a huge influence on me. Um, and it's amazing to think that, you know, this we're talking about 1995. And <clears throat> that was, you know, 20 years after his passing. But the way he competed, the way he carried himself, conducted himself, um, you know, I just, I was uh, enamored with his, his uh, character. And, <clears throat> you know, you got to learn about people like Frank as well. Um, and Jack Batchelor and Jeff Galloway and uh, all of the great runners from the 70s, which was a great era for American distance running. And um, I think we kind of got away from the mindset that those guys had actually in the 90s. Um, and I think that resurgence, uh, that Prefontaine resurgence that happened sort of in the mid-90s with the 20-year anniversary of his death and the documentary um, sort of spurred people like myself on. And, and then you saw in the early 2000s, things began to change and go back to maybe the way they were in the 70s with some adaptations, of course. But I think we had a much better mindset as a country in the 2000s and, and, and still today than we did in the 90s. And, and I do think that the Prefontaine aura had something to do with that. All right, Frank. I know you could probably talk about Steve all day long. <laughs> so give us some nuggets about Steve Prefontaine. Well, we first met each other uh, when I had just graduated from college and he had just graduated from high school and we ran in the national championships in 1969 and he uh, ran well enough in the 5,000 to get on the American team to go to Europe and I ran well enough in the 10,000 to go over. And uh, I also knew a fellow named Kenny Moore uh, who was also on that uh, team and he was also from Oregon. Uh, ended up finishing fourth in the 1972 uh, Olympics. But the point I wanna make to, is to start off, we all just happened to blend together and I would advise any of the runners out there, no matter what your level, if you're just beginning or you're at the elite level like Ben, and he can probably describe his athletes, some of his athletes who are doing this, train with people of equal or better ability and don't be afraid to contribute equally to that training because you both will get better than you would on your own. And I think my relationship with uh, Steve Prefontaine, I always call him Steve, um, uh, was that way. Because that summer, we went over to Europe and we happened to train together on the track because uh, Bill Dellinger, his coach, gave him workouts that were basically the workouts I would do. I, was, I trained like a 5,000 meter runner. And right away, we both realized that when we were on the track running hard, and I'll give the example, we had a step-down workout where we did um, 1,600 meters, 1,200 meters, two times 800 meters, and two times, or uh, four times 400 meters. And right away when we did that workout, we instinctively, intuitively, I guess I would say, shared the lead. We just, we, we shared it equally. We would, Run, one would lead during one repeat, the other would lead during the other. And if you wanted some, the other to come through, you just pulled out into lane two, I would go through or he would go through. And we did that.
for the next six years together whenever we got together. And the highlight of that was we went to a meet in Oregon in 1974, it was the restoration meet. And I was invited out there to run with him to try to set and break the American record for three miles. Well, as it turned out, um, Steve broke the record and I finished right behind. So I never broke the record. I just ran faster than the old record. But Bill Bowerman was standing at the 200 meter mark, giving us splits. We alternated sharing the lead. And this is shown in the movie Without Limits. And it's actually one of the, the, the only time, only argument I have with that movie. It, it didn't show that we shared the lead for the whole time. And then our agreement was 800 meters to go, every man for himself. And that's how we raced. And by doing it that way, we both ran faster than um, the previous American record for three miles. And so I would encourage, again, when I, I talked before about finding someone you know, of equal ability, well, for me, even though I was a marathon runner in terms of my speed training, Steve and I were very close, very close in ability. He could run the mile faster than I could, but I could run the marathon. Well, he never tried one, so I don't know. But we were very evenly matched in terms of how well we could run on the track. And we both acknowledged that we trained to make each other better. And then when the race came, we tried to beat each other's brains out. And, and that was, that was how, it, how it is. And, and I guess for, uh, again, even the, the, the beginning runners out there, uh, when you get competitive, even when it's with yourself, learn when to turn on that competitiveness and then learn when to turn it off, even in your own training. And just relax, let yourself recover, and then pick your times, pick your battles when you're going to go hard. So. You know, that was, um, that was my uh, relationship with Steve. So it was, uh, it was hard. And, and, I, and, and if you'll just indulge me a little bit, you know, I was the last person to see him alive. And uh, it took me a while to deal with the fact that we were discussing, actually, you talked about opening up the sport to prize money. We were discussing that out in front of Kenny Moore's house the night he died. Uh, he'd give me a ride home and then he took off and rode around the corner and died. And so I always, um, in a way, um, have felt a certain amount of survivor, survivor guilt uh, about, you know, I, I was there in those circumstances and it's just how God does things. Five seconds longer, five seconds less before he took off or not. But anyway, that was... Yeah. That was my he was a fearless racer and he liked to make people suffer if they were going to beat him. Where do you think that came from? Uh, Coos Bay. <laughs> he grew up in Coos Bay and he was, he was made fun of in, in, in school. And his, his, his dad was French, but his mother was German. And to a great degree, German English, in a way, wasn't his primary language growing up. So I can imagine all the, the teasing and ridicule, because kids can be such bullies. And, and I, but, you, you know, I think it's a lesson for everyone. 
in terms of how you can channel that, how you can deal with it. You, you make your decision in a way, it's, it's not a conscious decision. And if you allow me a second to fast forward to the drug situation, I lost to an East German on drugs in 1976. I didn't do anything. I, I never got up on a soapbox. I never complained for 22 years. And finally the window opened when the East German evidence started to come out. Then I did something. I have the feeling Steve Pre did the same thing. Sure, he internalized it. And he probably ran to deal with a lot of that stress. And then when the opportunity presented himself, which is his senior year in high school, he took it. And that was his way of dealing with it. And I think that's what made him so tough. Mm. That's beautiful. We've got to talk about a couple of big moments in the, in the lives of the two of you. I want to start with this one, Frank, winning the gold medal in Munich in 72. You weren't the first on the track because there was some imposter jumped in, some German student, I believe, took a little bit of your glory, but you were the first official finisher across the finish line. And I just watched a little bit of the replay today. Absolutely beautiful, efficient form you had there to, to go on to this victory, leading most of the way. Give us a little bit on Munich 72. Well, I had, again, we get back to training. You learn, even with the beginners, all the way up through elite athletes, you learn what your strengths are. So even if you're starting out in that first six months, find the kind of workouts that you really feel suit you uh, and focus on those. And that sort of reflects my feeling that I think primarily everyone says, oh, we'll work on your weaknesses. No, I, I think in certain circumstances, you work on your strengths. And my strength was as a front runner. And my strength as a front runner came because I was very good at interval training because I trained like a 5,000 meter runner. I just loved it. I was good at it. And so I had good recovery. And I transferred that ability into the marathon in that I trained myself to surge and recover at a very fast pace. And I think what the interval training does, it allows you to narrow that gap of how much you have to slow down to recover once you've gone anaerobic and faster than you can finish the race, but when you slow down, you recover. So I trained to do that, and I trained to make a surge at about halfway, but the opportunity came at nine miles, and I ran, at the time I was the first person, I think, to ever really do something like this. I ran, I think, 433 from mile nine to 10, and then from 10 to 18, I think I averaged um, 443. And my feeling was going into the race that if I could run in the 430s, most of those marathoners probably hadn't run in the 430s at all <laughs> recently. And so I was banking on my recovery and it worked. So when you see that picture of me finishing the race and I have my arms up and I'm going like this, the thought that went through my mind was not, oh, now I've won the Olympic marathon. It was, I did it right. My training, and, and Ben can speak to that, it's that satisfaction of, of doing it right. And here I want to do a little aside. Ben, very few athletes, I feel, 
who have been able to compete internationally at the level you have actually ever can become good coaches. I think you've become a very good coach and that's a, that's a rare talent to be able to make that transition. And so I congratulate you on that. I think it's great. You've done wonderfully in, in, in Flagstaff and, and what I, um, what I think, and I know I'm digressing, but I think again, you find what suits you. There are athletes who came to Boulder the way I did, and it suits them here. It suits the triathletes. My God, it's triathlete Mecca. But the group you have in Flagstaff is also a very special group, and they're there because they want to be there, and they like how it is there. And, and that's what you do. You go where you can get better, and you're leading that there. But anyway, to get back to the the, the being in Munich, uh, again, I know Ben's instilling in his athletes, you, you try in these kind of races, at least I feel, to not be reactive, but to be proactive. The best way you can compete is be the first one to go and have everybody try to figure out what you're doing. And the importance of working on speed as a marathoner, that is critical. Now, Ben, I want to say that this photo, which I believe is behind your head as well, of the three ladies at the end of the trials there on February 29th. This photo has been a source of joy for me when I get down on myself during the pandemic. I go look at this picture because it is such a picture of joy. Alephine, obviously, as the winner. Stephanie and Helen, not too far behind, but overjoyed at seeing her teammate, their teammate get that result. Talk a little bit about your feelings as a coach in that moment. Yeah, that, <clears throat> first of all, thank you, Frank, for, for your kind words. Um, sure, it's easy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, that moment was everything for us. You know, it was the culmination of, of course, the training segment, you know, the 12 weeks leading up to that particular race. But it, in many ways, it was also the culmination of everything we've been doing since January of 2014 when we started the team. Um, you know, we've worked really hard on our culture and it's become very much a we culture. And, and this was a we moment. You know, this was Alephine um, showing empathy for, for Stephen Kellen while Stephen Kellen showed nothing but uh, excitement. And they were thrilled for, for her. So it was, it was everything that we believe in. And, of course, it was also, from a, from a training perspective, it was showing up and running our best on the biggest day, which is sort of what we've preached uh, from day one. And this was a great example of that. Your first Olympian officially. What's what's that mean to you? Yeah, that that, that of course was a goal as well. Um, it's a little bit more of a arbitrary <coughs> goal, you know, because some of these things are out of your control. How other people run on the day and and what it takes on that particular day. We've certainly gone to more of a. Um, um, a more nuanced uh, goal setting uh, situation where it's, it's really about finding out how good we can be and how, how well we can run on those biggest days. Um, and then we want these, these tangible results to be a byproduct of that, that mindset. So for, for this particular day, the byproduct of getting as ready as we could possibly get was, was a first place, a sixth place and an eighth, and an eighth place for these three ladies. And, and we were really proud of all of those performances. I know Steph has done a really good job of describing how happy and proud of herself she was for finishing sixth because 
that was the absolute best she could do on the day. And so I'm not trying to be corny, but, but it really is what we've, uh, what we've found works for us best. And uh, so, so to me, the, the Olympian piece is, is huge, obviously. Uh, but, but it, I, to me personally, it, what means the most is it was just an example of us doing what we believe in. Mm, I love that. I think that concept of goal setting has a lot of applicability with an athlete of any level. So how would you translate that type of goal setting conversation to an everyday runner who might just be trying to run that first half or first marathon or PR at one of those distances? Yeah, well, first of all, if you're listening, I, I mean, I think Frank and I both said the same thing. You know, Frank was talking about winning the Olympic marathon. And the first thing he thought of was, I did that right. You know, and I'm looking at this picture of these three and I'm saying, yeah, I'm proud because we did it the way we wanted to do it. And so if you're sitting there and trying to apply this to you, you know, again, I, I suggest that you, you let the fitness that you build over the course of your training be your guide in terms of your goal setting. Um, I think a lot of people do it backwards. You know, they, they set out to run Boston, let's say in April, and, and they sit there in, in December and they decide I want to run three hours and 30 minutes. I would suggest set out in December, plan out your training let your training build and build and build and get fitter and fitter. And then as you get very, very close to the race, then decide what your goal is on the day based on that fitness. I think that sets you up for success. Whereas I think that other model oftentimes sets you up for failure. Um, so that would be my suggestion is doing what Frank talked about, playing to your strengths, build your training pro program around your strengths, work on your weaknesses a little bit. Um, and then, of course, as I said, let the, let the fitness that you've built over time uh, set your goal for you. I think that's especially true for Boston for a course like that. Let's talk a little bit, Ben, about your team during this time. I know you guys have been doing a lot of things to be creative and you're still working very hard. But I would imagine that for some, perhaps, motivation has been a challenge when suddenly those tangible events go away, or at least you have to make such adjustments. So how have you as a coach approached keeping the team motivated and driven during this time? Well, it's what they love to do. So in many ways, it hasn't been as hard as you, as you would maybe think. Um, of course, there was some disappointment, especially early on as things got canceled, canceled, canceled. But then <clears throat> there was an acceptance and an embracing of the situation after a while. And it became, you know, what we talked about as a team was we wanted to play offense during this time. You know, you, you can sit there and you can mope and you can be defensive and, and you can be reactive uh, to things that are going on, or you can sit there and, and flip it and say, hey, first of all, we're gonna get really fit. We're gonna try some new things. We're gonna take advantage of this time that we have. And we're gonna play offense in the sense that we're gonna create opportunities for ourselves. Maybe some of those could be somewhat traditional, but then some of those other things are gonna be non-traditional, like like the mile time trial we did the other day or the, the two mile at Buffalo park. And, and, you know, what I found is that you, and I've been talking to college coaches as, as their seasons are getting canceled and just reminding them that, you know, anything can be fun if you make it so, um, and anything can be a big deal if you make it so. So, uh, you know, anybody out there listening and watching, like Frank said, 
whatever, whoever your group is, right? Whatever, whatever your training partners or whoever your training partners are, get together and do something like that, right? Um, you know, it, whatever the big path is, you know, in, in your city, right? There's always some kind of big, uh, you know, four mile loop, six mile loop that's really popular. Get out there and run it as fast as you can. Try to set, try to set your personal record on that course. Okay, yeah, it's not Boston, it's not New York, right? But it's still something. And, and you'll find, I think, that you can get pretty excited about those types of things. Frank, bringing you into this conversation, what would you tell that runner who maybe has struggled staying, staying motivated during this time? You know, I know some of the athletes in our world, some struggled at the very beginning to just build momentum because of the uncertainty and stress. And some maybe kind of got out hard and, and did well for several months, but then maybe hit a wall as this thing has progressed. But what would you say to that person who's struggling with motivation? I I tell them to maybe experiment as I was describing, I think to you two before I, 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 I'm cross training to the max now. And maybe if you're not motivated, go and try some other things, riding a bike. Um, if you have, if you are living somewhere where there is a gym that, that you can attend, go there, focus more on your weight training, take your mind, off of it uh, and try to find a routine that's a little happier. And the other thing is, don't worry about how fast you're running. Um, you just keep records. And this is the point I was trying to make as I was listening to what Ben was saying. Really keep your records. And then, even if you've never run a race, you, you have the record of your training. And in the race, it really doesn't matter, I think, how fast you run, but see how well you can do if you've been honest about the effort that you put out. If you said, yeah, that's about as hard as I could run, then you have a time. Then you go on with your training and, and then chart at, on, on your continued training how much you're improving. And based on that, I think pretty much everyone can kind of predict in the next race how much better or faster they can they can run uh, and and so uh, again it, it, and it's what ben was talking about you don't set the goal ahead of time based on not much information so the more information you have the the more likely you're going to be able uh to achieve that goal and again when you talk about being discouraged uh during the pandemic um I have to be honest and say, I, I keep talking about, we all have emotion that we love. Uh, I think primarily, everybody has a biomechanical motion that they prefer, whether it's swimming, running, cross country skiing, um, whatever, whatever you're doing. And um, be willing to, to try that to see if that really is your groove. Uh, the best example I can use is that People really aren't aware that Joan Benoit Samuelson and I started out as skiers. <laughs> we were skiers. And, and we, we, in essence, she got hurt and had to run more and more. Uh, and I just found out that um, I enjoyed the, the running more than I enjoyed the skiing. But that's how we both started out. So don't be afraid to try something else. Yeah, build momentum with another activity. I love that advice. Let's talk a little bit. Frank, you mentioned this idea of prioritizing working on your strengths, perhaps over weaknesses. 
what's the balance there? Because I know all of us have those things we need to work on. I can admit that I need to do more strength training in, in my overall fitness program. But I also know that's not a necessarily a strength of mine. Aerobic strength is a strength, however. So at what point do you make those decisions about working one thing versus another, working those weaknesses, building them up versus just really continuing to improve on what you're good at? Set a minimum. (laughs) (laughs) And and the minimum is, my example is the weight training. And it has something to do, even with my running training, I would always, every day that I set a goal, that goal was incremental as I got better, I would try to do better and better, but always attainable on that day. And if I did better, which I hoped and usually could do better, that's the way to do it rather than to build the disappointment. If you, and you can also in a way apply that to the weaknesses. Over the years, my weight training has evolved and some might say devolved to the point where I do a minimum routine because I don't really enjoy it that much. But if it's a minimum routine that I feel really is enough for me, and for me, it's I do lat pull downs and dips and um, dumbbell curls three times a week. And I don't do any more. In the core training I do, I do side planks and forward planks. And that's all I do. And the reason is, the same reason when I, and I hope that can appreciate this too with his athletes, I set my goals on a day perhaps when I was gonna wake up and once or twice a week go really hard and go to the track. I would set up a workout that was attainable so that, and it wasn't so large that I would lie there in bed that morning, perhaps thinking about reasons why I could get out of it. And, and, not, and Ben smiling, he, he knows what I'm saying. And, and so that's why in my training, even, and this is again for the beginners, when I got to my hard training, and I'm giving away what I used to do, because I was a 5,000 meter runner, I never ran more than three miles worth of very hard running in any workout. I didn't do five interval miles. I did 12 times 400 meters. I did six times 800 meters. But I did them very fast with very short recovery. And with that structure for me, I could always get to the track and do that because, you know, it doesn't take that long to run 12 times 400 meters. But if you're lying there in bed in the morning and going, oh, geez, I got to do eight interval miles on the track at 10K race pace or faster, um, that just wasn't me. And I think for a beginner, that might be a mental attitude that, that would work better for them. Set it up reasonable, attainable, and at a low enough level that you can finish it and do it on a bad day. I like that. Small things done consistently is way better than big things done just here and there, right? So Ben, one of the things I think about in the context of that discussion is this idea that as runners, it's important to be well-rounded. I think one of the things that's a hallmark of your team is 
the ability to not only work a variety of distances, but also compete well at a variety of distances. You know, your marathoners aren't just marathoners. I don't even know if you would consider them marathoners primarily. Talk about that importance for those that are running longer distances, half and full marathon. What, how important is it to work the full range of, of the spectrum of distances? I think it's very important for a couple of different reasons. Uh, number one is the mental stimulus, uh, the change mentally from going from a marathon segment and then trying instead of just going marathon, 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 uh, trying to focus on a, on a, on a 10K, let's say, or a 5K uh, in, in your next segment before going back to the marathon again. So I think that mental change is really important. It keeps you fresh, uh, avoids you from you know, getting that stale feeling. Uh, and then physically, I think working on, as, as Frank said, some of the faster stuff, even if you are a marathoner, keeps your form really good. You know, if, if you look at a person who just goes marathon, 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 and I'm talking about pros, I'm talking about beginners, amateurs, everywhere in between, um, they kind of begin to lose a little bit of the power and flexibility and range in their stride. Um, and the best way, in my opinion, anyway, to keep that power, keep that flexibility and that range is to make sure that not all the time, but at least on a semi, you know, consistent basis, you're, you're tapping into some speedier work. I think that's really important. And then, you know, going back to your question about strengths and weaknesses, how I like to do it anyway is, okay, let's say you're, you're an aerobic monster. You love the long stuff, right? And, and you despise the speed work. You're scared of the speed work. You don't want to get out of bed, as Frank says, on speed work days. Make those your medium workouts, right? So let's say you're buying into what I'm saying and you want to work on your speed. So you want to do some 200s, right? Well, you don't have to do the fastest, craziest repeat 200-meter workout in the world. You can just go to the track and run 8 to 10 by 200 meters at maybe your 2-mile pace, your 3K type pace, and be done for the day. And so you touched that zone without absolutely killing yourself doing the hardest version of that type of workout that you could possibly do. Then you can go to your harder day and make that something that you're really good at. So yeah, you're an aerobic monster. You love a long 10-mile tempo run, uh, if that's the semantics that you use. Go ahead and rip that one a little bit. Um, that's how I see it. Uh, and, and hopefully that can create a well-rounded athlete. So for those athletes that might be considering working a little bit of speed during this time, mixing things up because their fall races have been canceled, what would you suggest? What, what are some example workouts or some work that they could do to just touch those systems in order to keep it fresh, but also potentially to work on some speed? I'll give you a couple things. I would start with a fartlek version of, of a speed workout. So instead of putting the pressure on yourself of going to the track and running a certain time, I would start with things like, you know, I'm just going to use sort of volume that maybe is applicable to more, more uh, a wider audience. So maybe you're doing 10 times 30 seconds with a minute easy fartlek. Then you move up to 10 times a minute. Uh, hard with a minute easy fartlek, right? So you're alternating running hard and then running easy. Um, you do those a couple of times. Uh, then maybe you feel like, okay, I'm getting, I'm getting my legs turning over. Then maybe you try some hill repeats. So again, you don't have the pressure of, of a certain distance yet. You go to the hills, you can build a little bit more power there, find something with a six to 8% grade, run up at hard for 30 seconds, jog back down, 
um, maybe eight to 10 times. Then again, you move up to a minute, right? So a minute hill up and down eight to 10 times. Now you've built a little bit of base for yourself where, okay, you're a little bit used to it. Then if you want to go to the track and try 200 meter repeats or 300 or 400 meter repeats and try them at, you know, start off with trying them at your 5k pace, get that down. Then gradually build toward your 3k pace and then maybe finally you can do some work at your mile race pace which is really fast running um, that sort of progression over the course of a segment is what i would like to see and then i'll add one more thing and that's don't be afraid ever no matter what the workout is to throw on a little bit of speed at the end even things as easy as eight by 100 meters or if you don't have a, a marked course eight times 15 seconds hard with a minute recovery um, at what would be maybe your mile race pace that kind of work is really good, uh, and it's a sneaky way to get some speed in. Kind of like strides, stride, working strides. But you're doing it afterwards, so you're doing yeah. it when you're tired, which is really, I think, important. Hmm. Frank, going to you, I want to talk a little bit about balance during this time because I've seen with some athletes, they've been very eager. They've been very well-motivated doing you know, a lot of things, maybe doing a bunch of virtual races, taking advantage of what's available. but I also want to make sure they recognize the importance of balance, <laughs> having your hard segments, your recovery segments, not only within a period, but also maybe taking some breaks. And for some, we're five months into this pandemic, maybe it is time that they take a little break and then switch gears into something else. What did you learn about balance during your career? Well, I would balance in kind of a different way than perhaps some other people. I always have needed something else on which to focus while I'm training and have it be sort of the next priority. Growing up, it was reversed. I ran for stress relief all the way through, you know, primary school, prep school, college, and at the end of college, that's when the shift happened. And then I decided to focus on my training, but what I did, since I needed something else always on which to focus in a secondary manner, believe it or not, I went to law school while I was training for the Olympics. I went to law school full time. And, but I needed that, and to some degree, I think that that helps everyone. Have an outside interest and don't let the running just be that. And, and even if you're putting most of your mental energy into your running, um, have something else that maybe is not quite as much, but is also important. I have two other things that are important. Because we, we talked before we went on air, I, I, I call it turning the switch on and turning the switch off. And, and for me, going to law school, turn the switch off when I was training for the Olympics. Um, and I think anyone, it, it, no matter what level, I think it's better because you need that mental rest, as Ben said, the mental part of it is so important too. Uh, the other thing I'd like to just mention now, though, is with Ben, you know, it, it seems I love the parallel evolution because when he was talking about the fartlek and, and how, how you would structure it, he didn't talk about huge volume. And, and I took what he said to say, you know, between 10 and 15 minutes of going harder is enough. It's enough if you do it correctly. And again, it's not so much that you look for reasons not to do it. And but so I do the same thing now. When I go out and I do fartlek, I a minute is about it. And every once in a while, if I'm feeling good, I'll throw in a two-minute segment and rest for a minute. 
just to work on my recovery, but it's same. So I love the fact that it's, 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 a, it's a parallel evolution. Um, and, and so again, I would, I would say to people, you know, vary the routine. The other thing I found out with the fartlek is I have a lake out, outside, right outside uh, my door here. It's a standard loop. And I find doing the fartlek on a short standard loop where you kind of know the distance but don't is good. Because you beginners, when, you, when you're out there running, and the other thing you'll find, and don't worry about doing this, is find a loop or find a few loops, two or three routes that you run on a frequent basis. And now I have a loop I run, uh, and I pretty much run it every time I run. Because you find that once you learn it, it seems to go more quickly mentally. It doesn't seem to take as long. And so that's why don't be afraid to, to find these loops. And then when you take your friend on them, uh, and you're running with someone, and they're going, well, why, why are you running here? And, and your answer is, because it's the loop. <laughs> it's the loop. And, and, and so find your loops and, and incorporate those into your training, because then that's also a way to keep your records and chart your improvement. I love it. Ben, let's talk about planning training with all the uncertainty. I mean, right now we've got, you know, virtual races, races you can kind of create and put in front of you. But the idea of when we might have a real in-person race like we've known, we, we don't know when that could be. It could be, doesn't seem like it's going to happen this fall. It could be spring. We don't know. London's already postponed it, next year's race to October of 2021. How do you plan long-term in that kind of uncertainty? Well, maybe some of you guys are good with uncertainty, but it seems to me that human beings are typically not very good with uncertainty. I'm certainly not. So I try to create certainty. Uh, it goes back to what I was saying a while ago, which is create your own opportunities. Okay. So Let's look at the fall, for example. If many of you are used to picking a goal race in the fall, be it a marathon or a half or whatever it might be, obviously, I'm almost sure that it's been canceled or will be canceled. Okay, great, whatever. We can acknowledge that. Create something for yourself, an end point. Uh, so maybe it's November 1st. I am going to go out to my favorite loop, as Frank described, and I'm going to run that loop faster than I ever have before. Or maybe I'm going to run three loops as, you know, as fast as I ever have before. Um, create that sort of certainty. And you'll begin to then, I think, naturally fall into that rhythm that you're used to where you're training for something and that something gets you out the door. And I just think that's how human beings work. That's how runners work. That's even Frank, as good as he was, he said that's how he worked in his mind. He needed that next thing to look forward to. And I think we all do. So create that thing for yourself, whatever it might be. Is it, you think that's far enough to look right now? I mean, personally, I like to look 18 months out. Oh and, my gosh, that's, I don't have that kind of patience. <laughs> and I like to, I like to sort of, you know, not necessarily set in stone, but sort of plan in three to five month chunks over an 18 month period and kind of have a loose plan. Right now, that's not really possible. So is that, do you just abandon it? Do you just say, look, I'm not going to think that far ahead. I'm just going to focus on what I can control, which might be the next three or four months and create the milestone that might be there. Yes. 
<laughs> that, that, that's what I would do. Yes. I think it was a long time anyway, but uh, yes, I, I, I would create something uh, more in the short term and focus on it and create some certainty in your life. Uh, we all need that right now. I like it. Frank, same, same question for you. What, how would you advise those as they're just trying to plan the next three, four months or maybe like the crazy ones like me, 18 months? Well, I can only speak to what I used to do. And I simply um, had goal races, but I train the same way year round. And, and I ran cross country and did well in cross country. Um, I did well in the indoor track and I trained the same way. You know, I described the training I did with Steve Prefontaine, uh, pre, and I was, uh, that's just the way I was. And for me personally, all I ever wanted to do was try to get better and see how good I could get when I was younger. And then as I've gotten older, I think I talked about that a little bit. My goal became to slow down, as I put it, as slowly as possible. To, to find out how to adapt my own personal training. And so my goal is, is a longitudinal goal. And, and, um, and <laughs> the curve used to be going up, and now the curve's going down, but I'm trying to go down fighting. Uh you're trying to flatten the curve the and other way. Flatten the curve. And so, and, and I think for me personally, it was good because it takes in a way the pressure off because it doesn't create an instant in time where I say in, in the past, I used to have to do that. And as Ben said, the most successful runners are the ones who truly know how to peak um, um, on that, you know, on that day. The most recent person in my mind uh, to do that, and again, it's because of my age, is Meb Kofleski. If you look at Meb's record, um, he knew how to get ready at the right time. And, and that's something I don't think you can, co you can coach it, but you have to have feedback from the athlete that is so um, good that, 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 that you're able to do it. And that's, that's why the, the, the working with the coach, and this is where I talk about, you know, when I would run with the other athletes, like uh, Jack Batcher, who taught Ben, he, he taught me how to run 100, 100 meter sprints at the end of a long run on the infield, on the, you know, on the, on the football field, the same stuff, parallel evolution, same stuff. And, 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 and just, you can, you, you just find a way to keep going that way. I think I'm, um, you know, just trying to say that everyone is different and how, again, they can main, maintain that interest. And my interest, again, was curiosity to find out about myself and my running and doing yeah. it uh, in a way that was, was always realistic. And, and I brought this point up before, and it's, it's a good one. Um, I think before we went, went on, on, on virtual was that don't be willing, don't be willing to find out. Be willing to find out. Set up your routine, set it up, and then say, let's just find out. 
And I can adapt as I'm going along, but I'm always going to be willing for any little setbacks, whatever might happen, but I can constantly fine tune and adjust so that I can find out. The other thing is in terms of the, the, the advice I always give people, especially the beginning runners, whether you're gonna run in a virtual race or it, it gets to the point where you can race again, uh, if you're going to go for a max performance, and I think Ben will back me up on this, uh, yeah, you taper, and it's two nights before that it's important to get sleep. So the night before, if, if you're all nervous about this and you got this performance coming up the next day and God, you can't sleep and you're all worried about it. Years ago, and, the, and psychologists actually, I can verify that, just personally, I decided, I decided that, I, at, that night before, if I couldn't sleep, if I were to lie there and just relax as much as I could and let my mind calm down and just be not as afraid of what was going on, that was 75% as good as being asleep. <laughs> and, it, and it turns out that it is. And the important night to get sleep is two nights before. Again, these, these little things that you can come up with mentally to help you along with your training. And that's what you're talking about, you know, maintaining interest, uh, you know, finding uh, ways to keep yourself motivated. And we can all well, use other people's experiences. You make a good point about longevity. If, you, if we all want to be running when we're 72, like Frank Shorter, then we'll realize that when we get to that point, we'll look back on this time and it would be a small blip. So just get through it, focus on what you can do, thinking with the long-term in mind. I wanted to ask you, Frank, about, or sorry, Ben, about virtual racing. Last question before we talk about Hoka. What advice would you have for athletes prepping to get their, the best of themselves out of a virtual race where it might just be them lining up on that favorite loop of theirs? I would sign up for it with, a, with someone else. I, I would, I would or, or multiple people, whatever your training group is, try to, try to put some peer pressure on your friends and get them to sign up as well. I, I think there's the power of the group, uh, even when it comes to a virtual race. And even if you don't want to do the virtual race together, I'm not saying you have to do that, but I'm saying that sign up for the same virtual race and train for it and talk about your training and get excited together. I think there's momentum there that maybe is difficult to create uh, on your own. So that would be my biggest, uh, my biggest thing is just try to get some other people involved in it. Find the community. Create it yourself, exactly. I wanna talk now about the Clifton Seven give Hoka there do here. You tweeted about this shoe. I know you've been running in it. I've got my pair here that I've also had a, done a spin in. Really good update. This is an iconic shoe. Many like it. Lightweight, but sort of the, I don't know, my opinion, the flagship model of the Hoka line. They've got a nice update here with the seven. What do you think of the update? Well, this is what I tweeted, and I really mean this. So I, I owned specialty running stores for six years in St. Louis. And before that, I worked at the Hanson store in Michigan. So I, I fit a lot of people for shoes. I have spent many, many Saturdays and Sundays uh, all day uh, fitting people in shoes. And, and one of the things we always talked about in that world was the try-on feel. Now, that wasn't everything, of course. They, got, they have to perform. 
but the the try on feel for this shoe is out of this world and it's it's real sometimes the try on feel is fake you know but this is a shoe that you can put on and run in right out of the box and i feel like the cliftons have always been like that but this is a this is a different level for me i love that heel um and i love the upper the upper is just i just can't really off the top of my head think of an upper that that made me feel this way when i put the shoe on uh that's just the honest to gosh truth it fits like a glove, I would say, and I have a pretty narrow foot. Not all of the models work for me in the Hoka line because of that, but this one fits perfectly snugly. I would also say for me that it's got a little more pop, a little more responsiveness than maybe some have in the past, but a really nice update. Frank, have you tried it? Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm like you. I have a very narrow foot. I have a B-width, and I'm okay. I, the test for me is if I put it on, I start lacing up with the laces closed, I'm in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing is the narrow heel. So then, and, and I have to really have a snug heel. And so that, that works well for me too. And the other thing is just, I, I like the lightness, the fact that it's so much lighter than it looks. And, and there, there's, there's something about that. And then the other thing I'll admit, you talked about my, running form, you know, when I was in the Olympic Stadium and I was light on my feet. And, and actually at the time they would uh, measure, they would have a measure they would call the friction coefficient, which is the amount of energy you put into the ground versus compared to how much energy you use to carry yourself forward. And my friction co coefficient was one of the, the, the best they ever measured. In other words, I could use so much more energy going forward than I would leave in the ground. And I will admit, as I've gotten older, I need the cushioning. Um, when, when I was younger, I didn't. And I, I did now, I can tell. Um, and I, but it doesn't mean, and I'm telling other people too, when you uh, start to get older, stay on the soft surfaces whenever you can. And, and at least have a lot of your running surface be soft. But since I'm also on a lot of, um, about half my loop, has has pavement on it or sidewalk and it, it works very well for me if i don't it, it makes it the difference for me is i don't have to think about when i'm putting my foot down it just it just goes down and i don't have to feel like i'm drawing back to to cushion it it helps me cushion i don't have to i don't have to make any effort to to reduce the impact and so that's that's what i found and i you know i just yeah. It's everything. Yeah, they're crushing it. There's also the Clifton Edge, which is another shoe I have here for those that want a little bit more. Ben, final question on Hoka supporting Northern Arizona Elite. What you guys are doing as a team with Hoka is innovative. It's some of the, to me, most fun. It's one of the most fun partnerships in the sport to watch. What's the latest on Hoka and NAZ Elite and what, they get, what you guys are doing together? I'm trying to think of what I can and can't say here. We have a lot of fun <laughs> announcements to make in the next two to three weeks, but I'll just say overall, the partnership has been amazing. You know, they came on board with us in 2015 and we were very, we were very parallel, right? So we're, we were this up and coming uh, team. They were this up and coming brand and we've really grown together uh, performance wise, of course, uh, obviously culminating with, with the Olympic team, um, 
or making the Olympic team, I should say, in February. Uh, but we've also grown in, in terms of awareness, brand awareness for Hoka, brand awareness for NAZ Elite. It's all, it's all kind of, you know, going like this together. And it's just been fun, you know. And, and like you say, I mean, we're just trying to be innovative and creative. Uh, but, but a lot of it, it's, it's very natural. Um, the brands are very um, analogous. Um, you know, we have this group of athletes that is super into the business side of things and into – creating content for our fans we really understand that that side of the business and hoka has always fully supported us and given us a lot of leeway you know everything you see us doing it's not like they're they're coming to us and saying do this do this do this it's more like hey we trust you guys we know that you're a creative bunch of people go do your thing and we'll amplify what you're doing in any way that we can and that's to me as a creative person it's wonderful because i love I love just just doing things, you know, just trying things. And they're always very supportive of that. And I think that support uh, is going to continue for a long time moving forward. Well, I love it. It's been an absolute privilege talking to the two of you. I wish we had another three hours, but we've got to wrap it here. Thanks so much, Ben and Frank. I did want to quickly announce, speaking of virtual racing series, at least for us, as a part of the road community, we're introducing this series in September that we're calling one, the One for All Racing Series, where athletes are going to do one mile in September, 10K in October, 10 mile in November, and then a half marathon in December for those that would like to participate in our community as well as outside. So stay tuned for information on that. But thank you to Frank and Ben. We really appreciate you taking the time. This has been a real privilege. Oh, thank you. Thank you, guys. There you go. Ben and Frank, unbelievable conversation. Really, really appreciate those two for all of their wisdom. Hope you learned something on that one. Hope you enjoyed it. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at roguerunning. Until next episode, we'll talk to you then.